Thank you for listening to Embassy City Church's audio podcast. This week, Katie Creel shares with us a message titled, The Prodigal Son. We pray God speaks to you through this message and his word today. For more information on our church, please visit us at embassycity.com. So today, if you want to go in your Bible with me to Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11, I would like to preach to you today from the parable of the prodigal son. Starting at verse 11, going down to verse 32, and I will be reading from the New Living Translation. And Jesus says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. It sounds so funny saying wild living. Growing up on King's James, you have to say riotous living. Just It, it loses some power when you say wild living. Uh, about the time that his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding to the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned both against heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned both against heaven and you, and am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the fields working when he returned home, and he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating now because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all of these years I've slaved for you and you've never once, uh, I've never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you've never given me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, You have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but he is now found. Lord, we just pray in the name of Jesus that your kids come back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
So whenever you're looking at a story, whenever I'm looking at a parable, um, any kind of conversation, even if I'm talking with somebody and they're relaying a story or some information to me, I always want to know not only who's talking, the context of what is being said, but I want to know who the audience is. Because audience gives context. If you don't know audience, you don't understand really how to interpret what is being said because there's an understanding that in conversation there's a relationship that exists between the person that's talking and the people that are listening. So as we look at this story, we have to understand the background of who it is that Jesus is actually talking to. Scripture tells us that he is talking to publicans, he's talking to tax collectors, he's talking to teachers of religious law, but there are also well-known sinners here at the table. So it's an interesting mix to where if, if I was teaching ABCs, you would think that young children are there listening to the conversation. You would not expect someone of a certain age. So when we look at the audience, the audience in itself, it's an interesting mix for Jesus to be talking what he's talking about, especially when you have a mixture of people in the church and people in the world. So Jesus goes on and he, he tells three parables in, the in a row in chapter 15. The first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. And the parable of the lost sheep is about the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one that sheep is lost. The second parable is the parable of the lost coin where the woman is in the house. She loses a coin. She sweeps it until she finds it. But then finally where he really lands is in this parable that is known as the prodigal son. Now, I want to walk you through this story, and then I want to kind of give you some context of some revelation that I believe uh, the Lord wants us to see in this story. First of all, when we see a son go to his father, particularly in Jewish culture, and say and, and demand that I want what belongs to me, what he's basically saying is, I wish that you were dead. You're dead to me. I want you to be dead to my life. I don't care about relationship with you, but I only care about the blessings and the gifts that I can get from you. Does it sound like a similar conversation anybody's ever had with God? When we think about Adam leaving the garden, when we think about the sin of disobedience coming into the heart of man, the whole idea of living an independent, disconnected life every day is to wake up and say, God, I don't want you, but I want what you can do for me. I don't want relationship with you, but I do want the blessings. I don't want relationship with you, but I do want the gifts. So the younger son is having this, uh, this conversation with the father, and the thing that's interesting to me about it is in that culture, the father had a legal right to beat him within an inch of his life for making such requests. He has a legal right to beat him within an inch of his life for saying that. But what's also interesting to me is that this son, he's talking to the father. Not only is it amazing that the request is granted, but I just have to have wondered that son, he had to have been around to observe the father's nature, the father's character, the father's demeanor, the father's personality. Because you know when you approach your parents, you know what questions will get you beat. And what questions may actually get an answer? But there was something in that father's character that he had displayed that gave the son any sort of confidence to even come to be so bold and audacious to ask such a request. 
So I don't know if I'm more amazed at the son's boldness to ask or the father's willingness to give. I, I, I don't know if, if, if I'm more surprised that, that the son could just be so peacock proud or that the father would have such foreknowledge, such grace to be able to give to his son because he understood he didn't know what he was doing and saying at the time. So the interaction happens, and so he's the younger son, so he's entitled to a third of the father's property. So the father grants him this request, and he's loading up this stuff. Scripture tells us that he loads up and he gets ready to leave. Now, how many of you know that this was not going to be a common occurrence in the village? How many of you know, had, 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 if this is to happen, that, that if this father does this, all the other fathers in the community are going to know and hear about it? You're going to have those fathers that, that are going to be judgmental and uh, they're going to condemn and say, well, if it was my son, I would have done this. If it was my son, I would have done this. If it was my son, then you may have some fathers that may have understood and say, well, I can understand this, and I do understand why you would have done that. But the whole community perspective of it is now, we all know your father is not dead, but we see you packing up his stuff and leaving. Are, are we more surprised that you're leaving your father's house or that he's letting you go? We really didn't know it was an option. So the younger son, he leaves and, and he goes, and Scripture tells us that he goes uh, to a foreign land. And while he's in this foreign land, he's living it up. And he's living it up because all he's ever known was a life of abundance with the father. So while he takes a third of his father's substance, in this young man's life, he believes that he has enough to live off for the rest of his life. The idea of lack and running out had never occurred to him. This was something he had never experienced in his father's house. He, he had always seen multiplication. We know the evidence because in verse 17, he, one, at one point he says, even the servants have plenty. Even the hired hands. So, so he, the only context that he knows is more than enough. El Shaddai, the God of more than enough is all that he knows. That is his paradigm. But then he gets out in the world, and now he's having a situation where he sees that this stuff and this blessing, when it's not connected to the source, it's not going to be a perpetual life-giving stream. So now, so, so, so now he's realized, well, I walked away from this source, and, I, and I'm in another kingdom. That, that, that those blessings, that those gifts, the way that they used to work in the kingdom of light, they're not working the same way in darkness. So since I'm out here in darkness, I've got to find somebody else to connect myself to because I need a source to help me survive in this new kingdom I've come into. So scripture says that he joins himself to a citizen and the man puts him to work. So not only does he put him to work, he puts him to work working in a field feeding pigs. There is no degrading or more demeaning job that you could have asked a respectable Jewish man to do. Because now you want me to compromise my integrity to the point that you want me to feed something that I know is unclean. How many times in darkness are you told that if you compromise, you'll get some success from it? 
You're told that if you compromise integrity, that if you compromise character, that there's going to be a benefit for it. There's going to be a trade-off. That's, that's just the way it is out here. You know, we, we have to do that in this field. You have to do that in, in this job. And, well, you know, just, it's, it's not too much just to bend a little bit here and bend a little bit there. And before you know it, he's compromised his integrity to the point that now he himself, he's starving. Now, a lot of people have looking at this story over the years and, and felt like he may have had a, a somewhat of a bougie attitude as far as I'm not going to eat the pig's food. But in reality, the truth was the carob pods that he was feeding those swine could not be digested by the human digestive system. It wasn't that he was being picky. It wasn't that he was being a chooser, but he literally was not created to digest that worldly food. He's in a situation and he's in a place and he's feeling the starving because all of my dad's stuff has run out. Everything from the kingdom I'm from has run out. And now I'm in this kingdom and I'm trying to feed myself. And now I realize that if I eat from this kingdom, I'm going to die. So it is the hunger, it is the point of starvation that registers and reminds him of his father. See, there's a scripture that says, and uh, I believe it's in Matthew 4 and 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So a lot of times when, when, when we're going from one place to another, when we're coming from darkness to light, the thing that will bring us at our wits end is when we've tried to consume everything around us but still feel empty. When we've tried to eat and feed on everything that is available but you're still starving. Anybody know what it's like to be starving? Anybody know what it's like to, you just can't do something enough. It just won't bring the satisfaction. Do everything and still unsatisfied. So it is the starving and it is the hunger because the world was not able to satisfy him that reminds him of his father. So once he gets to the point where he's reflecting on his father and he's reflecting that even the hired hands have it better with my father than what I'm having it here in the world, I believe he reflected on that last conversation that he had with the father before he left. Be careful about last conversations. Because I just wonder, what was it that the father did? What was it that the father said? Or maybe it was something the father didn't do. Maybe it was something the father didn't say that made him feel like he could come back home. Be careful of last conversations. But again, that same father was good enough to let him go. He knew enough of his heart that he knew that he would take me back. So now he's trying to work on his speech of how he's going to come back home. Now, the thing that I appreciate about him is that he's humbled now and he's, he's being extremely practical. He's not being entitled at all, and he within himself, he's reconciled that I'm probably not going to be able to get back to where I was before I left, but I'll settle. I probably can't get back in the house, but I'll settle for just getting back on the property. 
So he says, you know, well, maybe, maybe my father, maybe I can just work for him. I mean, there's always work to do on the land. There's always work to do on the farm. I mean, I've been gone. You know, he may have forgot about me. I mean, it's not like I'm his only kid. He's got other kids. Surely, if I, just, if I go and I tell him, maybe he'll just hire me. I know he can afford to hire me. I know there's enough food. I, I know there's enough room for me. So the son, he's planning his way to come back home, and I can only imagine the talk of the town when he starts walking back to his father's house. Because scripture said, I will arise and return to my father, for he never forgot the way back home. So he probably came back taking the same route that he went out. So everybody that saw him leave, packed up with his father's stuff, proud, haughty, rebellious, disobedient, will be that same trail that he takes coming back, humbled, grateful, appreciative, seeking. Can you imagine the talk in the village? Because, see, we know that everybody knew what he was doing while he was gone because later in the chapter, the brother talks about him being with prostitutes and him doing this and him doing that. So it wasn't like he left and people forgot about him. For everything that he did while he was in the world. Did you hear what so-and-so's son was out there doing? Did you see the women at the well, the conversations they must have had about this boy? So he, he, he has been a topic of current entertainment. So just as everybody talked about him when he left, can you imagine how he felt to, I have to walk back by these same people? Oh, I can't stand her. She's so Oh, you, he just mad because he think just because none of his kids left. He think he perfect. Oh, he just and I can just imagine him getting himself ready for the court of public opinion when he's trying to come back to the father. See, I don't believe that he was ever at once nervous about what the father's reaction was when he came back. But I imagine that he probably was very preoccupied with the reaction of the people. I'm so glad that he did not let shame, he did not let embarrassment. I'm, I'm so glad that, that he did not let condemnation keep him from getting to the Father, but that he made the journey through the people to make it back to the house. Scripture tells us that while he's a long way off, the Father sees him. That lets me know the Father had been looking for him. Father had been waiting on him. Then scripture says the father runs to him. He embraces him and he kisses him. Those three things are symbolic before God's foreknowledge was in that run. He didn't wait to come to see what he had to say. He knew what it meant when he saw him come back. He already knew why he was coming. The foreknowledge is in the run. The mercy was in the embrace, but the reconciliation was in the kiss. So while this whole time the, the son is, he's memorizing his speech. Dad, I, I sinned against heaven. I sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be your son. Take me on as a hireling. Dad, I sinned against heaven. I sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me be a hireling. Dad, I sinned against heaven. I sinned against you. I wonder how many times he said that in his head on his way back. But when he gets to the father and he starts saying it, the father just interjects. 
The father doesn't even let him finish his speech. But immediately after he embraces and kisses him, the father, he tells the servants, he says, quick, come, go get the robe, go get the ring, go get the sandals, come and place them on my son. I can imagine how uncomfortable the son was at that point. If you've ever really experienced the love of God at a deep level, it's uncomfortable. Because there's not a love for people that can prepare you to receive it. Because that son, his expectation is so low. He's coming back just asking for the crumbs. And the father offers him a seat at the table. The father so far extends any expectation that the son had. The son had no idea that the father could be so loving, so kind. He, he, the father exceeded his expectations to the fact, I wonder if the son was nervous and looking around at all the servants and everybody else thinking, everybody here, they know what I've done. Everybody here knows what I've done, did. Everybody here knows where I've been. Everybody knows. And what are people going to think seeing you run to me? What are people going to think seeing you hug me? What are people going to think seeing you kiss me? What are people going to think putting your robe on me, making me the guest of honor? What are people going to think you giving me your ring, you giving me your authority, and now you want to put sandals on me because slaves didn't wear shoes but sons did? The father wanted to make sure that anybody around who saw that son, that they understood that he did, not, he, he did not accept him back as a slave. He only accepted him back on the terms of sonship. I wonder how many of us, though, when we come back, we struggle so much because we can't forget everything that we did while we were gone. Everybody around us is looking at us with such contempt that we don't feel worthy to wear the robe of righteousness. We don't feel worthy to wear the ring. We don't feel worthy to carry the authority. We don't feel worthy to have the sandal. So we're, we're just settling for being on the property because we don't feel like we're good enough to go in the house anymore. There's a scripture in Ephesians that says, For by grace you are saved, through faith and not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man shall boast. Now, when the father brings him in, the next thing that he tells the servants is, he says, go and get that calf that we've been fattening. Bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals. But go and kill that calf that we've been fattening. I remember a, a scripture in Revelations where John says, Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The father had prepared the sacrifice and the answer before the problem ever happened. He already had a sacrifice and a plan in place to receive that son back before that son ever left. So while the older brother and people made did not understand why the feast was necessary, the father, being the Jewish man, understood without the remission of blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. 
So the father had already prepared the sacrifice for the atonement. The, the, the son was wondering, what am I going to have to do to work back to get? The father said, baby, all I needed was you to come back. I've, I've already got a plan in place. I've already taken care of this. I've made all the provision. I've made all the arrangements. All I needed you to do was to come back to me. There's a scripture in Ephesians 2, 4, and 6 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love were which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. For by grace we are saved, and he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. If you've ever been lost, you understand the joy of being found. If you ever know what it is to have to have come back, you understood how that son felt in that moment. But I would be remiss if I didn't tell you the whole story. Because church tradition over the years when we've looked at Luke 15, it has come to be commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. But I submit to you this morning that there were two prodigal sons. For Jesus himself starts the story with, and a man had two sons. I submit to you that both of his sons were lost. The younger one was lost in the world, but the older one was lost in the house. When you look at those two parables before the prodigal son, when he's telling them about the lost sheep and the lost coin. The lost sheep is about a sheep lost in the world. But you see, the coin was lost in the house. So while the younger brother was lost in the world, the older brother was lost in the house. See, being lost has no, no uh, respect of persons as it comes to proximity. You can be lost standing two feet from somebody. You can be lost on the other side of town. When we're looking at what it is that was, how was one lost in the world? How was one lost in the house? When we're looking at the younger brother, the spirit of disobedience and the sin of rebellion, that's what kept him lost in the world. But the older brother, it was the spirit of religion and the spirit of pride and self-righteousness that kept him lost in the house. When we see in verse 25, the older brother is first introduced to the story, it's important to make mention that while all this is going on, he's in the field working. He's working and he's working. And you can tell by his conversation with the father that, that, that he felt like he was to be a worker bee because religion is going to always give you the perspective of God as a taskmaster. I've got to do this, 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 got to do this. So when, so when the, the, the older son, because he already has such a skewed perception, when he goes to the father and, and he looks, all he can say is, I've slaved all these years for you. Religion makes you slave. Relationship makes you serve out of love. But the older son says, I've slaved and I've slaved for years. And he goes on in the conversation with the father. And he says, I've kept all your commandments. 
I've done everything that you told me to do. I've done this. I've done this. I've done that. And it sounds like another conversation that we've heard Jesus have with the rich young ruler. It sounds like a conversation that Jesus has had with the religious scribe who wanted to know who his neighbor was. Because he's wanting to know with the father, what I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. But just like in the other scenarios, you've not done everything because you've not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, of your mind. And you've definitely not loved your neighbor as yourself because you've not even loved your brother as himself. You see, Jewish culture dictated that the eldest son take on the role as mediator and reconciler between the father and the other siblings. If there was to be a disagreement between the father and a younger brother or another sibling in the family, the eldest son had the authority to speak on the father's behalf. The elder son had the role of being the mediator to bring about a peace, to bring people together to handle the father's affairs and the father's dealings. Because the thing about it is, is I just have to ask myself, when I read the story, where was he when his younger brother left the house? If your job was to be the mediator, your job was to be the reconciler, where were you when your little brother left the house? You had to have known he was leaving the house. Siblings are close. You know what your brother is doing. You knew what he was doing in another country, so I knew you knew what he was doing in the room next door. Where were you when your younger brother was trying to leave the house? When you heard him rehearsing his proud speech, when when you heard him getting up the courage to go and ask the father, where were you, older brother? Because when I look at the story, the father is having to step in in places he shouldn't necessarily have to. Because, see, when the younger brother was leaving, the father couldn't leave the house. The father couldn't leave the house and go after him, but his brother could have. You see, the father is on the throne. The father couldn't leave his throne. He could not leave the house. So what did he do? John 3.16 said he sent his son. He sent his son to come and get us and bring us back. So the older brother, you neglected your duties while you're checking all your boxes of everything that you did. You've not loved your neighbor as yourself. You've not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I just wonder how different the story could have been for the younger son, what he could have been saved and spared from if the older brother loved him enough to go after him. I just wonder if the older brother would have went after him and said, come on, man, let's, let's, let's reason together. 
if while he was gone was, was the older brother, what, he should have been the one writing letters. He should have been checking on him. He should have been getting word to him. He should have been the one making him feel welcome. He should have been the one trying to get him to say, come on, man, dad's not that mad. Just come back. Let's talk. We can work it out. It can be over. Matter of fact, he should have been the one watching for his brother coming back on the property. If, if your brother was just so headstrong of going, after a while you got to let him go. But I wonder, was he praying for his brother while he was gone? I wonder if he was looking. I wonder if he is watching. He should have been the one to run, to greet, to embrace and kiss. He should have been able to walk him hand in hand back to the house to the father. But because he did not follow the first and greatest commandments, the father had to step in until he could get a son that was willing to do it. There's a scripture in Corinthians that said to wit that what God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, but has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We are now ambassadors for Christ. And in this house, I believe Pastor Tim says ambassadors, we say come back to God. Who is it that we could have gone after? Who is it that we know about right now that we can go after? Who is it that we can be the elder brother and mediate for to bring back to the father? Who is it that we can go to and tell them that dad's not mad at you? He'll take you back if you just come. I wonder how different the brother's experience, the younger brother's experience would have been when he came back if it would have been somebody besides the father that welcomed him. Because now you have people not only mad at the brother for leaving, but you got people that have an attitude with the father for taking him back. I just wonder if the younger son would have been greeted by his brothers, by his brethren, how much comfortable he would have been to not just be on the property, but if his brother would have told him, it's okay, we've been saving you a seat at the table. See, it was easier for the younger son to know that he was lost because he was in the world. We can all spot out people that are lost in the world because the undisciplinedness of their lives, they're easy to see. But what was it hard for the elder brother to know that he was lost because he was in the house? There's so much ministry and there's so much teaching and there's so much evangelism and, and there's so much resources that have been committed into getting people lost in the world and getting them back into the church. But I say that evangelism must first start at the house of God. Because I say, I submit to you that if the older brother would have been found, he would have treated the younger brother different when he tried to come back. See, it's one thing to know that you're lost. But it's another thing to think that you're found. I'm not scared for people that know that they're lost. When people are in the world and they get the revelation of Jesus and, and they understand that, you know, the Holy Spirit has convicted them and they understand that they need to come back for, to God and that they need relationship I, those are not necessarily the ones that I worry about. 
because it's so obvious to everybody, even them, they understand lost and found. But when you believe that you've already been found, you can miss that you're lost. When the older son's having the conversation with the father, and the father says a statement to him, and he says in verse uh, 31, he says, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me. In the King James Version, it says, son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. There's two things that he's saying to him. First of all, as the eldest son, he was entitled to two-thirds of his father's estate. The younger brother got the third, which he was given, and he went out and he squandered. But that two-thirds, everything that the father had left, belonged to the eldest son. So the father couldn't really understand why he was acting like that about his younger brother. Because how I deal with him has nothing to do with how I deal with you. What does it matter to you if I take him back? What does it matter to you if I extend mercy? What does it matter to you if I extend forgiveness? You're not going to get any more or any less of me because I choose to reinstate relationship with your brother. But religion always wants to have a say in who gets to come in and who has to stay out. Religion always wants to be the measuring stick to have sin by degrees. Well, we'll take you back if you did this. But if you did that, nah, you, don't, he, he, you can't come sit back at the table. You, you need to work your way back up. Religion wants to always make sure that it looks a certain way. You see, religion will have you taking up an offense on God's behalf that he never even told you to carry. So the other, older brother is so blinded by religion, his anger is showing. We know that anger is an offspring of a spirit of jealousy. So when I really look at the story and I ask myself, what is it you're really mad about? Why is it that you're so angry? What, what is it that you're really jealous of? And the Holy Spirit said the relationship. See, the second thing that the father told the son, you know, he says, you're ever with me and everything that I have is yours. But when Jesus tells the story and he said that you have always been with me, you have to understand, you know, our language is not as complex as what the Greek language was. There are several different words that would have been used to describe being with someone. The word that Jesus used in this situation is the word mata, which means general association, intermediate position between two places, and proximity close enough to participate. But what's astounding, not as much as the word that he used, were the words that Jesus did not choose to use. He did not choose to use the Greek word in, which means a fixed position, a fixed place in time state, a, a position of rest. But the most intimate word that could have been used to signify with somebody is that that you would use of people that are in relationship. And that is pronounced, it's pronounced soon. And it denotes a union with, being together, companionship, completeness, as with a husbandman. 
So when you say, when he says you've always been with me, what he's saying is you've always been generally associated with me. You've always been on my property. You've, also, you've always been close enough in proximity to participate. But what he doesn't say is that you've been in union. We've been together. We've been companions. We, we are complete. We are abiding. I'm in you. You're in me. Because the biggest lie of religion is that religion has a way of getting people associated with God, but never in a union with him. I don't know who you relate to more in this story. I'm going to be honest with you. I can see myself in the elder son, and I can see myself in the older son. I know what it's like to be lost in the world. I know what it's like to be, have a season of being lost in the house. But the thing that I'm so grateful to the Holy Spirit for is that when we're lost, if there is a desire in your heart to be found, he will reveal to you the areas that you're lost in. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more about Embassy City Church, please visit us at embassycity.com and follow us on social media at Embassy Irving.